0: You're listening to The Oaks Church, a faith family located in Denham Springs, Louisiana. For more information about The Oaks, visit oaksonline.org. Morning, church. Exciting to be here this morning to worship with you guys, with God's people, and to open the Word of God and really hear from His Spirit teaching us. Uh, It's always good to experience God and and who He is in Scripture, because that's the truth about who He is, and that's what Peter writes about, and he writes about how God is our truth and how we have to hold on to that in the midst of persecution. And so this morning as we sing these songs, as we sang, I wait for you, Lord, I hope you process that, I hope you process what Anna was saying, that there's not a waiting like we're sitting and not moving, but it's an active waiting. That we're waiting on God as we continue to pursue Him in this life. I hope that's in your mindset. That we're just not sitting like bums and waiting on the Lord, but that we're pushing forward in the gospel and that we're administering the gospel to those in need. And so if you would turn to 1 Peter in chapter one, and we're going to focus in on verse 3 and 4 this morning, 3 and 5, I'm sorry. But last week we looked at Peter, and we'll just give you a little summary. Last week we looked at Peter. The author of 1 Peter, it was written in 62 A.D., right after this great outbreak of persecution on the Christians that was started or initiated by the evil emperor Nero. Uh, It was a fire that basically destroyed all of Rome or most of Rome. And in that, Nero pointed to the Christians and said, this is my scapegoat, they're the ones who did it, we'll blame them. And so in that moment, this outbreak of persecution came amongst the Christians. Even to the point where we, we, we learned that Nero would take the Christians and he would encase them in wax and put them on a stake and light them to light up his garden. And so it was, there was this huge push of persecution and suffering amongst the Christian church. And so Paul Peter, knowing this, in his writing, he writes this epistle to Minor Asia for this reason, knowing that persecution and suffering is coming their way. And that there's no way around it, but that they will be persecuted. And so there's two ways that Peter attacks. There's two ways that we learn that Peter attacks this persecution and suffering in his letter. And that's one, by solid doctrine. And two, by practical living. And so what we said last week is this. We said doctrine is the foundation to which believers can practically live in a fallen world. And so our doctrine is a set of beliefs, is the foundational beliefs to which we hold true to That we say there's no wavering. that Christ alone, we're just saying Christ alone is the one who saves us. And so these doctrines we have to hold on to in the midst of persecution so that we can walk in obedience the way Christ did. And so Peter writes this in in, in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, for this reason you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. He left you an example to follow in His steps of persecution and suffering. He did this for a reason. That we don't look like the world, and the world will come against us, and in the midst of that, we must learn to look towards Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, after you have suffered for a little while, he says, after you suffered, not saying maybe if you suffer or will you suffer, he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Christ did not leave you alone. He left you the ultimate example. And He lived this life perfectly. So we see this theme woven throughout Peter's entire letter, throughout his entire letter to the church, knowing that this persecution, knowing that this suffering is on the horizon, and he starts in all places the doctrine of election. He starts with the doctrine election. Look what he says in verse 1. It's to those who reside as aliens, as strangers. People, we are not of this world. He says, you are chosen. You were chosen by God according to the foreknowledge, meaning the predetermined from eternity past that God's not some fortune teller. That he doesn't look into the future and say, oh, well, now you're going to make a bad decision or a good decision. He knows from all eternity past what choice you will make because He is sovereign and He has called you. It has nothing to do with him being a fortune teller, but knowing that he already have decided from all eternity past, and so he says, "You have been chosen." The foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work, by the sanctifying work in the Holy Spirit, meaning that, that we have a faith that we repented, that we regenerated, that we are adopted children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, "To obey Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of His blood, that His blood sealed you forever for all eternity." That there is nothing to do with who you are and what you did. But it's everything to do with what Christ did on the cross, that God the Father predetermined this so that he would be glorified and not you yourself. And so remember what we said? We said the doctrine, uh, that doctrine is the foundation to which we can live practically. This is very important because knowing this, knowing the doctrine of election, we can trust in the complete sovereign work of God. And this is not. This is not about choosing a camp. This is not about choosing any camp over another. This is about choosing the Word of God over the wisdom of man. We have to understand that. We have to understand that even though our, our feudal minds cannot comprehend fully the doctrine of election, we know that Scripture teaches it. So we're choosing the Word of God over the wisdom of man. And so, the biblical doctrine here, the biblical doctrine that will give you peace is knowing that God is sovereign, it's knowing that He is sovereign, that He is sovereign over His people, and that He has given you the responsibility to live out the gospel in a manner worthy of Christ, in a manner worthy. And so, that is why Paul ends with these words right here in his salutation. He says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He says, May it be yours in the fullest measure. Meaning that you will know the full peace of Christ and what He did for you. And that He defeated death on a cross. And He defeated it for all eternity. And so knowing this, and in the backdrop of what we're doing as we walk into this letter of Peter, knowing this, for the next three weeks we're going to look at this. We're going to look at our salvation and how it is secure. And we're we'll going to do this in three ways. This week we're going to look at it secure by the power of God. Next week that it is confirmed by the trials in our lives. And that is foretold by the prophets. And so as we walk through this progression for the next three weeks, my prayer is that we can really lean into what Peter is saying. That we can really lean into the truth of the message that he's trying to deliver to the church, to the church universal. Remember this letter was a a circular letter. It wasn't written written just to Galatia or Ephesians. That it was meant for all the churches. Because he knew that all Christians would come and face persecution. And so salvation preserved by God's power alone. Join with me as we read this this amazing doxology Peter writes right here. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has called us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through the faith for His salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. This passage is a hymn of praise and it is designed to encourage Christians to live who are living in a hostile world, to look past their temporal state, their temporal condition, and to look at the future of what God has promised us. And so in this passage, in this doxology, He gives us five components or five gears or five things that work together so that we can worship God more wisely that we can worship him with truth and glory and so in these five things in this short doxology he wants us to understand who the source of our salvation is he wants us to understand the cause of our salvation our inheritance he wants us to understand the acceptance of that the nature of that and then also the security in that and so look with me in verse 3 as we start in the beginning it says the source of our inheritance he says blessed be the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ and right here it's interesting it's very interesting that in the greek the word be is omitted and so it reads like blessed blessed the god and father or bless god and a lot of times when we think of that like how how in the world can we bless god how is that possible how us fallen creatures not worthy how can we bless God, the Father Almighty, King of glory? What can we do? What can we do to bless Him? And I think Peter gives us that example. He says, worship Him. Adore Him. So he starts with a doxology. He praises God. He worships God. And he wants you to implore others to do that. Pray that others will worship God and that they will glorify God. And that's how we bless Him. That we sing of His adoration, a, a praise that is worthy. is worthy of all. And that we give Him that honor and that glory. And then Peter calls Him, and then listen to what he says. he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase identifies God as, as undeniably identifies Him with Christians. And so what Peter did here is when he wrote this letter, he wrote it so that the Jewish people would know that we are speaking of a God of all creation, the Messiah. And not just God, who they are still looking forward to. That here we're saying that Jesus Christ is God. That He's part of the Trinity, the triune God. And so he writes this, and, and it emphasizes here, it says the Christians separate, I'm sorry, that Jesus separated, that He called, He says, My Father or My God. And then we see in the letter right here, He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, that he makes it personal. He's our Savior. And so he he distinguishes the two. He says, This is the God of all. And in this, in his writing, he's hoping that the Jewish people would see this too. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. And so in Scripture, we see every time Jesus talks to the Father, except once, in Matthew 27. On the cross, when the Father forsook Him, every other time He said, My God, or He says, My Father is My Father. And it's a, personal, it's a personal tradition that Jesus started. And He broke the old tradition of just saying God is Creator, God is Redeemer of Egypt. He says, no, God is our Father. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. One, one commentary says this. I love what it says about this, this phrase. It says, all the Bible reveals about the Savior appears in this title. It says, Lord identifies him as sovereign ruler, Jesus as incarnated son, and Christ as the anointed Messiah king. Then he goes on to say that he personalized this magnificent phrase, this magnificent title, with the simple inclusion of the pronoun our. It's our Lord. That ought to excite you this morning. That the source of all our inheritance, God the Father included us. That He loved us enough to include us into this glorious eternity that He's preparing for us. And so we understand that the source of our inheritance is God. Look at the calls. Here's the next part. The calls of our inheritance In verse 3, it says, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercies, His great mercies was the motive behind or the cause behind granting believers eternal life and sharing this life with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that we share this life with Him. Ephesians 2, 4, 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love, which, which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mercy focuses on the sinner's condition. It focuses on His condition. That God had compassion towards sinners. a compassion that we were dead in our transgressions, that He had mercy on us, so He sent His Son to deliver us from that. And so mercy is concerned with the person's condition. So I don't want you to get confused here. Don't get mercy confused with grace. All right? Mercy is concerned with our condition. Grace is concerned with the guilt that was caused by our condition. So here's the difference. Alright, so divine mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory. It takes us from misery to glory, and it changed our condition. Our divine grace takes us from guilt to to acquittal and it defined our position as adopted sons and daughters. We are loved by God. And so His mercy changed our condition. And His grace was our acquittal for our sin. That He satisfied the wrath of God. And that we stand justified before a holy King. And so that's the cause. That's the cause. Understand that God's mercy for you and for his people is great. And that's where our worship starts. It starts there. We have to understand our condition. We have to understand where we came from to truly understand God's grace. And then we want to take advantage of his grace. We'll appreciate and honor and adore and worship him because of his grace. And so the next part of verse 3 says the acceptance of our inheritance. So we say, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercies has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the believers, to be accepted, for us to be accepted into this eternal inheritance, we must be born again into a living hope. To be born again. What an amazing yet confusing thought and we see this struggle in John 3 with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into a second time to his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is his spirit. And so be born again as a transformation, as a transforming work of the Spirit of God in you, in you, from God alone. And so in this transform and transformation, you were given a new life and you were born again into a living hope. You're born into a living hope. And so the unbelieving world, they only know a dying hope. Yet we as believers, we know a living hope the eternity, the acceptance of our inheritance through what Christ did. And so it says, because of His great mercies, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope which we are accepted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our acceptance. This is the way we hold on to what God has granted us through eternal life. It's through what Jesus Christ did, not through what you did that Jesus Christ loved you enough to go to the cross and die for your sins. Understanding this, this all ties back to the doctrine of election. all ties back to this predetermined thought that God Himself already had this in motion. He didn't throw Him off guard and say, whoa, hold up, the people messed up. Let me get this new plan together. He knew it. God is sovereign. He's so good. And so then we look at the nature of our inheritance. We understand that through Christ that we were accepted. And then verse 4 says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. There's three ways that he describes this. Peter adds a description here. He says imperishable, which refers to not corruptible, not liable to death, and not subjected to destruction. He says your inheritance will not die, will not be destroyed. It is secured forever. And then he goes on to say it's undefiled, which describes us unstained or unpolluted, that our inheritance is not polluted, it's not corrupted by evil, but that is pure, that is holy, that is good. And he goes on to say this he says, it will not fade away. And this phrase here in the secular Greek describes a flower that did not wither or did not die. And so the term here in context for us as believers. It's this inheritance that will not lose its magnificence. That it will always be glorious. That it will always be good and forever. And I love what Romans 8.22 says. It says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. And so what it's saying is that the the whole creation, us, and the earth groans for the redemption of mankind. Because it's looking forward to this inheritance that is so good. That it's not polluted, that's not corrupted that's not defiled and that it will never fade away. So this is the nature of our inheritance and then last here it's the security of our inheritance. look at verse four then the end of verse four going into verse five says this it says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through the faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. All of the New Testament declares that the salvation depends on our faith perfected in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our security forever. And that there's no act of man that can undo this. There's nothing that we can do to undo God's promise or allow Him to break His promise. That He is faithful, that He's good, that He's true. And look what Titus says in chapter 3, verse 5. He says this, he said, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of His mercy. Hear that word again? On the basis of His mercies through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so, since we have been justified by His grace, we become heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life confident expectation of eternal life. And so the question here is not about security, but it's about complete surrender. It's not about whether our salvation is secure in Christ, it's whether have we completely surrendered. If we're being honest, have we completely surrendered to the will of God? It's not a question whether God keeps His promises, but are we willing to surrender our all to Him? And so now we see Peter's testimony of our salvation and how it's secure. And he declares this in verse 4 at the end. He says it's his reserve in heaven. And that word reserve means it's guarded, it's watched over, that there is no safer place in all of eternity than heaven. That God is watching over, that he He reserved this place for his people, the ones he have called, those for his own possession. That, that heaven is reserved. It is reserved, it is guarded. And then Peter goes on to say this not only is our inheritance guarded, but those who are those who possess it are also protected. Look at verse 5, protected by the power of God. By the power of God, we are protected. And it is protected by the power of God through what? What does it say there? Faith. Faith. Through faith. But once again, don't, don't be confused by this word faith. Just like we're not confused by the word waiting. This faith, it's an active verb that it, that we continue in our faith. So we don't sit still. We don't have a one act and a one moment where we trust in Christ and we're done for all eternity. and We're wrapped up and we're secured. But there's, there's a continual faith here. It says by the power of God through faith for salvation. Like, this is a journey people. It's a journey it's a good journey. There's no better journey even the world tells you opposite. It's a journey and it says that it is protected by the power of God through faith. Listen to what John says in verse 8 in verse 8 I mean in chapter 8 verse 31 he says so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him if you continue in my word you hear that if you continue in my word, then you are truly My disciples. You are truly My disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free or set you free. The truth will set you free. And if you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith of God, Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says that the faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By the power of God, your faith, the faith will be revealed in the last time. Salvation means this. It means rescued. It means delivered. That you are people that are rescued by God. That you have been delivered by the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave on the cross. And that you are ready. That you are ready here. That you are ready for eternal life. You are ready for for the glory to be revealed in the last times. You're ready to be completed. See, there's three phases in this process of salvation. That's why you hear it's a journey that we continue in our faith. There's three processes. The first is the past aspect, which is justification. And that's when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, that when He calls us, we surrender our life to Him. And we are justified, that we stand holy in front of God. Because God doesn't see us, but He sees Christ in us. Galatians, We understand that? Christ in us, that He looks at Christ in us who stood in our place. And so we are justified. Then we have the present aspect, which is sanctification, that we are continuing being delivered out of our sin, that we're continuing being renewed out of the sin, the evil in us. And then the last is our future aspect of that, which is glorification. And this is what He means here when He says ready to be revealed in the last times that that our, our glorification is that when we die, and God delivers us into eternity for all time that we'll be glorified. That our bodies will be new. Amen? That's good. It that is so good. And so in conclusion, Joe and the band comes back up, in conclusion, this is what we said about the passage of hymn. This is what we have to understand about this hymn of worship, this doxology, is that it was designed to encourage you in the midst of pain and suffering that Peter wrote this so that it would encourage you to know how to worship God, how to adore God when he wrote this message, when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father that we could have a better understanding how to worship and adore Him. And he does this in five ways. He says this, just remember, and I want you to meditate on this as they sing, as we look at the Lord's Supper, as we partake in that, I want you to meditate on this thought that the source of our inheritance is God and God alone. It has nothing to do with us. There's nothing we could do to merit that. But He is our source. Understand that. Understand the cause is His mercy, His great compassion on us. Understand the cause. The acceptance that Christ laid down His life for us. that He died on a cross. That He shed His blood. And that in the shedding of His blood, He secured our life, our inheritance with Him forever. And that the nature of that inheritance is undefiled, that it's pure, that it's holy, it will never fade away, it will never be corrupt, it will never be polluted. And that it can only be found in Christ. And then last, the security of that inheritance. That it is reserved for us. It is reserved for us by the power of God in salvation through Jesus Christ, which is ready to be revealed. Which is ready to be revealed in the days to come. It is ready. So take this doxology, meditate on it, and as they play the song, I want you to meditate on that, meditate on our source, meditate on God's great mercy, on Jesus' great sacrifice. And as we remember that sacrifice, I want you to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, But in doing that, as we're meditating on that, meditate on your heart. Meditate on it. Purify your heart. Say, God, forgive me for all that I've I've done. Forgive me where I've wronged you and others. Remove any guilt from my heart so that when I approach this table, that I do it in a way that honors you. It's not about who I am, but it's about remembering your sacrifice. And that we're thankful for the inheritance that we have through that sacrifice. So that when pain and suffering comes, it's going to be tough. But there'll be a peace, there'll be an ease about it. Knowing that our security is found in Christ alone and not us. Not what we've done or accomplished. So if you're not a believer, if you don't understand the Gospel, if you don't understand this process of salvation which we talked about, we ask that you don't partake in that. And that's okay, but if you don't understand, come see me, come talk to me, grab an elder, grab a friend. There's nothing more important than you understanding that God has chose you to be a people for His possession, so that you can live a life that glorifies and honors who He is.